Jill Santopolo is an international best-selling author who writes sweeping love stories about decisions, regrets, second chances, and how families influence the choices we make. Her fourth novel, Stars in an Italian Sky, moves from World War II Italy to today's New York in a tender-hearted family saga. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and in Binge Reading today, Jill talks about how writing helps her understand her own life and why she believes books are essential, not just for our children, but for our human future. Our giveaway today, the Book Sweeps Family Saga and Historical Giveaway that was due to close today, has been extended for a few more days. So I'm putting that up again so you have a chance to enter and win that library of 50-plus historical and family saga books. Included in it is one of mine. It's actually two books, one and four, a full-length mystery, Poison Legacy, and a New York Christmas novella, Tangled Destiny. The links for where to enter that giveaway can be found on the show notes for this episode on the website, The Joys of Binge Reading, along with the other details, like Jill's social media contacts, and where the books that she recommends can be found as well. And don't forget, if you enjoy this show, do leave a comment somewhere online so others will find us too. Word of mouth is still by far the best recommendation. But now, here's Jill. Hello there, Jill, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, you're in New York and I'm in New Zealand, so it's really fun to be able to make these connections. You've got the most amazing range of roles on your CV, which we probably will get into a little bit later on. But the real reason we're here today is to talk about your latest book, Stars in an Italian Sky. It's your fourth novel, and it's a sweeping dual timeline romance that starts in Genoa in World War II and then moves quite quickly to New York in the 2021s. Is this the first one where you've had a truly historical aspect to your work? Yeah, I think so. My first book, The Light We Lost, starts in 2001. So by some definitions now, people are calling that historical, which is crazy to me. But this is the first one that feels truly, but set in 1946, it's post-war. It, it feels truly historical to me in a different sense. Yes, that's right. All of your books had got the same sort of territory, heart-searching decisions about where to go in life, missed opportunities, and how families influence our choices. And I wondered what particularly appeals to you about this territory. I feel like love in all its forms is what connects people. It connects us to our families, to our friends, to people we want to have relationships with. And how we navigate those different loves in our life, I think, shapes how we live our lives and shapes our path. I just always find it interesting when those different loves, you know, bring us into conflict for various reasons or 
you have loved turns out to be someone different than you thought they were, or just different stories about how love relationships can change and the effect they have on us and the long-term effects they have on us too. Yeah. And there is quite often a family dynamic with these where the parents have a strong view about who their son or daughter should marry. And there's that terrible tension for the younger generation as to whether they follow their heart or are obedient to the parents, isn't there? That's right. often the feature. Yeah, absolutely. And I think every generation has a sort of different culture, different societal pressures than the generation before them. So there is always that tension between an older and a younger generation. Yes, regardless of the culture. Now in this story, we alternate Giovanna, who's a young woman working as a seamstress in Genoa during the war, and Cass, a marketer with a fashionable clothing company in New York, and the men in their lives. Now in Cass's case, her grandmother came to the U.S. after the war, a very common pattern in those years. And I note you dedicate the book to your grandmother as well. And I did wonder, because there's such a close sense of the way Italian families work, whether there was a personal link there for you. So my grandmother is truly one of my favorite people on the planet and always has been. And she is now 91 and a half. And she is amazing and strong and wonderful. And a lot of the way Cass feels about her grandmother in this book is how I feel about my grandmother. And I've always thought about the way families are built on the generations before them and the influence that a matriarch or a patriarch of a family has on successive generations of that family. And I think that there's so much that my grandmother gave to my mother, that my mother then gave to my sisters and myself, that I can see her fingerprints on us now and on the sort of way we're raising children. So there's just a lot of my love for her is in this book. She, though, did not come over from Italy. This grandmother that I'm talking about is my mother's mother. My father's family, his father, was the Italian piece. So there are actually a lot of nods to my grandfather, whose name was Michele Vincenzo, Michael Vincent in the U.S. But so Vincenzo, I pulled from his name and his mother was Giovanna. So I pulled that name and his sister was Faustina. So I pulled that name. So there's a lot of family connections um, for me in the book on, on both sides, my mother and my father's side of the family. That's beautiful. Yeah. The book does require intricate plotting, the two generations and the way that they finally interlink. At the beginning, those two people are not regarded as being any sort of blood relation at all, no connection. It's gradually as the story unfolds that you see the links between them. It requires very intricate plotting. And we always like to ask, are you one of those people who has it all down on paper before you begin, or do you just let the story unfold in front of you? Okay, in the middle. So I definitely don't have it all planned out. I think I've written books that way. I've written like work for hire books that way, where I just knew I had to knock this book out in a very short period of time and I needed to plot it because otherwise I was not going to be able to hit the deadline I was given. But for these books, I write myself a large synopsis, like a kind of summary of the story. If I were sitting here just telling you the story of the story and then I read that and I base what I write on that, but it's really loose. 
the connections aren't there. The scene by scene isn't there. It's just like, I know that this happens and I know that this happens and now I have to figure out how I get from here to there. And for this book in particular, I wrote the two timelines at once. Like I was alternating as I was writing because I knew that there were things I wanted to drop in one timeline that would be relevant in another timeline or things in the later timeline that then you would find out about in the earlier timeline afterwards. So I knew that there were things I wanted to do like that. So I wrote it alternating. But when I revised it, I pulled both timelines apart and revised them separately and then put them back together again. And the story unfolds actually chapter by chapter, I think almost alternating all the way through the book. So you get sometimes there might be two or three in one go that there's a particularly dramatic thing happening. But in general, you have what is happening in Genoa in the Second World War and post-war. And then you have what's happening in New York and they alternate, don't they? Yeah, for the most part, until they come together. Yeah. Your debut novel, you've mentioned The Light We Lost, was an amazing success for a a debut author. You were a Reese Witherspoon book card choice, and also it's been optioned for film. How was that for you, and how's the movie or TV progressing? Is it underway? It was an incredibly mind-blowing experience, having The Light We Lost come out, get chosen as a Reese Witherspoon book club pick. It's been licensed in 35 territories right now. It was one of those things where you have to live in the moment right now because this is a magical thing that might never happen again in your life. Like you you really need to appreciate this because the responses were really wonderful. And the film so far, I, I feel like I got a crash course in, in movie production as this book has been optioned. So there have been a bunch of steps and I know there are still a bunch more to go, but I have read a script that I think is wonderful. So I'm crossing my fingers. Great. Yes, great. Had you written anything at all before The Light We Lost? So I had written a whole bunch of children's books, a whole bunch of children's chapter books, series of 12 that were work for hires. So I basically auditioned to be the pen that writes the story that the publishing house came up with. I wrote two children's mysteries that were an homage to my own childhood of loving mysteries. And I wrote two choose-your-own-romance books for teens. We called them the follow-your-heart books. So in the same way that you could choose to go into the castle or go into the jungle or whatever when you were reading a choose-your-own-adventure book, it was like, do you want to talk to the lifeguard or do you want to talk to the guy selling ice cream on the beach or whatever? So I wrote those before I started writing books for adults. Yeah. And so you're right. My ones were also YAs, were they? No, those were chapter books for younger kids, for six to 10 year olds. Well, that's interesting because now one of your main roles when you're not writing for your own stories is for the publisher Philemon and imprint of Penguin Young Readers. And you've edited many now critically acclaimed, award winning, and best selling books for children, cooperating with names like. Chelsea Clinton and Kamala Harris. So tell us a little bit about that work now. I really believe that children's books have the ability to affect the future and affect the future of society. And there are so many remarkable people, including Chelsea, including Kamala, who 
I think can empower young readers to really make a difference in the world, see things differently, think about themselves differently. And I just get such joy out of working with these people to bring stories to kids, bring their messages to kids, and hope that it helps kids feel more confident and more empowered to realize their dreams and make a difference and do what they want to do and be who they are and be a wonderful contributing part of their community. There's a lot of concern expressed these days about how children aren't reading and even adults, actually. I've had a lot of authors say to me since COVID, their reading, even if they were passionate readers, has been greatly disturbed and they find concentration on the written word harder. What's your take on all of that? So I think people will always love stories and gravitate towards stories. And whether the stories are in books or on television or in songs or in a million other places, I think hearing stories and telling stories is how we as humans connect with each other and also process everything that's going on. And I think sometimes books are hard to focus on if there's so much else going on in the world. But I also think that when you can escape into a book or a movie or a music album, you really do go to a different place and you can understand and think about things differently because you come away with a different perspective. And so you, you obviously wouldn't be hardline about the idea of audiobooks, anything that encourages stories. Absolutely. I love audiobooks. I actually recorded my first three audiobooks myself, which was wonderful. I didn't do the last one because my Italian is not great and someone right. really needed to sound good there. But yeah, I know I love audiobooks and I'm a huge fan of audiobooks. I'm also a huge fan of ebooks. I'm a huge fan of print books. I'm a huge fan of any sort of way that people can get those stories. Many of the authors we talk to have written stories when they're relatively young, but I think your story of first book you wrote hardly <laughs> takes the first prize. Tell us about your first book. Just to give background on this is that my mother, before she retired, was an elementary school teacher. So we did a lot of projects at home and I wanted to, when I was three years old, I wanted to write a book. So she told me that I should tell her the story and she was going to write it down and then I was going to illustrate it. So I wrote a book called Stacy the Cat about a magical cat who, if you pat her, turns you into a mat. I'm not sure really where the idea came from other than the fact that a lot of the words rhyme. So maybe I was just learning about rhymes. Might have been it. But so my mom wrote the words to the story that I dictated to her and then I illustrated them. And then she brought them to work and put them through the lamination machine. So I still have a copy, the one and only copy of Stacey the Cat that I wrote when I was three. That's how gorgeous. Turning away from the books to looking at your wider career, you've got so much happening with all the various roles. We haven't mentioned you're on a lot of academic committees and other organizations that promote children's literature, as well as having these very well-selling books and a young daughter. How do you manage not to get overwhelmed with everything you've got there? Oh, I do get overwhelmed for sure. But I think Tiny Steps has always been the way that I have gotten through any project and any challenge. For writing, for example, when I was in graduate school, we had to write 50 pages a month. 
And my friends and I would bet each other how many pages we could write a day, a week. And by breaking it into these tiny little bits and saying, I can write three pages today. Of course I can write three pages today. That's not a big deal. You write three pages a day for long enough and you've hit your target. And I feel that way too. I mean, I have lots of lists, but it's things like, okay, I know I need to sign my daughter up for a bunch of programs for the summer. I can sign her up for one today. That's easy. And then sign her up for one every day. In a few days, I've signed her up for all the things she needs to get signed up for. So that's really kind of been my attitude always about things. And I think it's helped me juggle a lot without feeling like I'm juggling a lot. Yes. Um, But there are definitely points where I get entirely overwhelmed and I'm doing triage and just trying to get the things that actually need to be done that minute done. Yes. Writing must be an absolutely essential part of life for you because otherwise I would understand if at your age and stage of life with a young child, you might think, oh, well, give it another 10 years when she's at school. What is it that made it feel essential that you had to have, particularly these adult novels, as part of your life? No, I think the way I exist in the world and process everything is through writing. I think I understand myself and my experiences better after I have written through them and written about them. So I always say that even if I weren't trying to get my work published, I would probably still write stories. And I can tell if I haven't written for a while that like everything is starting to feel a little frenetic. And if I can sit down for an hour and get into a story, I come out much calmer. Um, Yes. So where do you fit your writing in in your day? I haven't quite settled on a specific time. There was a while where I would reserve one day a week or two days a week for writing and other days I would edit. Recently, I've tried to set apart like a number of an hour a day or a half hour a day or just to get a little bit in bit by bit. I think given my my choice, I would write probably for a few hours every morning before doing anything else, which isn't always possible, but is a goal. If there was one thing that you would see as the quote secret of your success in your creative career, and it can be your writing and all your publishing, what would it be? That's a great question. I think it would be not being afraid to be vulnerable because I think A lot of my stories are connected to situations that I've been in, in which I have felt particularly vulnerable and have given that vulnerability to my characters, which I think connects with readers. And also myself vulnerable and putting things out on the table when I'm editing too and saying, this may not be the easy way to to do this, but this I think will be the most powerful way to do this. And let's talk about it. Yeah, I think vulnerability. That's a great answer because even publishing a book, you have to be vulnerable, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Because you're putting your, at least I, I'm putting a lot of my heart on a page and then putting that page out in the world. And there are people who love it and people who say really unkind things about it too. And you just have to be willing to do that if you're going to write and hope that the people who you're story touches, whether it makes them feel less alone in something they're going through or takes them away from a difficult time or whatever, that it's 
it's worth it. That's why I do it. Yes. We, we talked a little bit about this before we came on air, but your stories are romances and family sagas. And when you think about particularly the area of genre fiction and how publishers in particular like writers to really focus on an identified viable niche, what would you call your stories? Yeah, I've always thought of them as love stories and love in all its forms, not just romantic love. The love of families, the love of friends, and the love of lovers. Yeah, that's a great way to describe them. And it very much widens the idea of romance. I've noticed actually there's quite a lot. I think there's a real expansion in this part of the market that stories that were once regarded as, quotes romances are now much wider in definition. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's probably true. I think that there are the more traditional kinds of romances, what you think of when you think of a romance novel, but then I think that there are lots of stories about love that are out there. Also, the aspect of the second chance romance, because that does come into your story as well. An older couple who are finding love, and that's very much something that seems to have blossomed a lot in the last few years. I think people find love at every age and there's beauty in love no matter when you find it. And I think that's an important thing for people to continuously think about. Yeah. I'm turning to Jealous Reader because this is the binge reading podcast. A lot of our listeners love reading through authors backlists and moving on to the next book. Tell us about your own reading tastes. Maybe you don't have much time at all for reading at the moment, but just in the past, what has grabbed you and what are you reading at the moment if you have any time to do it? I love reading love stories, which I get a lot of from various editors and publishers, oftentimes asking for blurbs or just sending it to me. And I literally this weekend finished Annabelle Monaghan's newest novel, which is called Same Time Next Summer. And I love, love, love Nora Goes Off Script, which was her first novel that came out last year. So this was her second. And I also absolutely loved this one. And before that, I read Meet Me at the Lake by Carly Fortune, which is also the second one of hers that I loved. And I think next up on my desk is The Saver by Adele Griffin which I'm excited to read about as well. I've heard some wonderful things. And I also recently read The Daydreams by Laura Hankin, which is a wonderful book that is like, it talk about genre jumping. It's like part love story, part mystery, part coming of age novel, and a lot of fun with a lot of 90s and early 2000s pop music in it. That sounds fun. But looking down back the tunnel of time, if there was one thing about your creative career that you'd change, what would it be? That's a great question. You know, I think it took me six years approximately to get up the courage to show pages of The Light We Lost to anybody. And I think I would have tried to get myself the courage to do that sooner. So did it take you more or less six years to write that first book? Yes. I'm sure a lot of people would find that encouraging too. I also just read The Paris Daughter by Kristen Harmel, which is fantastic. Oh, The Paris Daughter. Yes. Now, all of these, they all sound as if they are in a similar range to the ones you write, that there's this love, family, 
would that be a right expectation? Yeah, I think so. And I think that's because that's what people send me. I mean, it's been very rare these days that I go out and end up like choosing a book for myself because so many come to my house for me and they all sound so wonderful. The last book that I actually went to a bookstore to buy was Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin, which I also thought was phenomenal. People talk about a book slump. I feel like it's the opposite. I've been on like a book high. I've read so many books that I've really enjoyed. Because people think they know your taste, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, I think so. So what's next for Jill, the author? Looking ahead in the next 12 months, what have you got on your desk in terms of your creative side of life? So I have a new book that I'm working on that I am still figuring out exactly how it's going to work and what it's going to be. I'm about, I guess, 5,000 words in. So still meandering in the first sort of stage setting. Have you done the synopsis already? Yes, I've done the synopsis and now I'm starting to find my footing using the synopsis to write the first few chapters and seeing how it goes. Is it another dual timeline and has it got a historical aspect? It does not. It is a single timeline and it involves some characters that readers of mine may already know. Oh, that sounds tantalizing. <laughs> yes. That's fun. Now, the obvious question to round us up because we are out of time. Do you enjoy interacting with your readers and where can they find you online? Or how do you like to interact with them? I do. I love going to bookstores and actually meeting people in person and talking to them face-to-face, I think is wonderful. I also love, which I do all the time, zooming into book clubs um, and chatting with people about any questions they might have after reading my books. So those are, that's super fun. And then I also, I am like basically parked on Twitter, but I don't tweet. I do Instagram a lot though. So if someone is looking for me, I'm on Instagram at Jill Santapolo. I also am on Facebook at Jill Santapolo author. But I think if you, if you want everything that I post, it's Instagram. Right. Wonderful. I also have a website, jillsandapolo.com, if anybody wants just random information like about Stacey the cat. Lovely. And just one last question that was a little peeking mention about book clubs. If people wanted to ask you from a book club, how's the best way to approach that? Email me, jillsandapolo.com. Let me know what book your book club is reading and when approximately-ish you're looking for a visit from me and we'll figure it out. Lovely. Look, Jill, thank you so much. You've been a delightful guest and it's been wonderful talking. Been wonderful chatting with you. Thank you for all these questions. Bye now. Thank you. See you next week. Remember, if you enjoyed the show, leave a comment so others will find us too. Thanks for listening and happy reading.